This is the Emerging Women Podcast, where we become inspired to live and lead from the truth of who we are. We're creating a new paradigm for power that includes the feminine perspective because the world needs it. Hello and welcome, Emerging Women. We have a fabulous guest and a timely guest today. This is Dr. Kristen Neff. She is currently the Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. She is the foremost thought leader and researcher in the field of self-compassion. In fact, she was the first person to pull out self-compassion as something that could be measured, its effects, its importance in our daily lives. She has conducted the first empirical studies on self-compassion nearly two decades ago. Now, this is important because this is when we hear self-compassion, sometimes we feel like, oh, this is like a nice thing. This is hard research, people. And especially for women, it's time to really take this seriously. And we're going to get into this in a very um, fierce way. And, and you'll know what that means as we move forward. In addition to writing numerous academic articles on uh, and book chapters on the topic, she's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. This book was a lifeline to me for the, actually for the past 15 years, but especially when I started Emerging Women. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she co-wrote and and worked with thousands of, of teachers worldwide to bring uh, the material into the world of mindfulness. She's the co-author of the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. So this work is in every continent in the world. It's helping teachers bring self-compassion to the field of education and so much more. Her newest work focuses on how to balance self-acceptance with the courage to make needed change. Her new book is called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and thrive. We need women to step into their voices and be heard, be seen, and to affect change in the world. We need the balance of the feminine, and this is a call to that. And for more information on self-compassion, please go to the self-compassion website, Kristen's website, self-compassion.org. We will put all of this in the show notes. It is a privilege and an honor to work with Kristen. We work together over the last eight years since I launched Emerging Women and even before that as um, when I was working at Sounds True. So it is a real honor to talk about fierce self-compassion and women. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Chantal. I'm so happy to be talking with you because you get this and I know your audience gets this and it's so nice to be speaking to kindred spirits. <laughs> I know. And I want to say that when we were talking, when Kristen and I were talking, she was talking about how this work is so different. I'm speaking, I'm used to like speaking to my audience and you at the same time. But I love that it's different because self-compassion, it's an action. It's not just something to think about. And our audience is ready for action. More and more, they, they're ready to, they're emerging. They're, and when you have that fire of emergence, you can either 
completely burn out because you're not taking care of yourself, or you can take care of yourself and really make change in the world. So this is a great launching point for that. And I'm wondering if you could just give us why now, why focus on women and why you made the the slight shift from mindfulness and self-compassion to speaking directly to women at this time. So, yeah. So really the past 10 years, ever since my book came out, I've been really focusing my career on figuring out ways to teach people how to be more self-compassionate, to developing practices and, and training programs. And one of the things I noticed over the years is that people kind of tend to have a one-dimensional view of self-compassion. And, and this is partly because compassion is part of the traditional female gender role. So when people think of compassion, they tend to think of its nurturing side, its warm side, its soft side, its, its accepting side. Um, and that is actually a very important part of self-compassion. In fact, this is the, the, the part of self-compassion that really allows us to emotionally heal, right? When we hold ourselves with love, even if we failed, when we hold our experience with love, even though it's really painful, when we can open to it with, with a, um, a, a wide, warm heart, it allows us not to be overwhelmed. So it allows us not only to cope with what's happening now, but also to heal from the past. Um, but it's interesting, some people look at that and say, well, does that mean that self-compassion is weak? And I have to say, I think it's because women historically have had less power in society than men. So they think it's a woman thing and women things are weak. Well, what the research shows is that self-compassion is an incredible source of power, of coping, of resilience. So, you know, sometimes if you think of compassion as concerned with the alleviation of suffering, that's like the formal definition in science. Sometimes to alleviate our suffering, we need to accept ourselves. We need to kind of open to what is. We know if we resist what is or if we judge and shame ourselves, it makes things worse. But sometimes to alleviate our suffering, what we, what we need is not acceptance, but change, right? Maybe we need to change something about ourselves. Maybe we're in a, a toxic relationship. Maybe we're doing some behavior that's, that's, that's bad for us. Maybe, get this one, maybe we're in a society that's harmful, <laughs> like systemic racism, sexual harassment, inequality, Right. So we, we don't get, you know, so it's not self-compassionate to accept those things. Part of self being self-compassionate is being brave, being courageous, making changes. Um, and also, so it, it, it enhances motivation, it resilience, it enhances strength and coping. But another thing it does, Chantal, which is, again, kind of related to women, and I'll get to why I wrote this for a woman, is even though compassion is part of the female gender role, women actually have less self-compassion than men do. And that's because our compassion is only really allowed to go outward. We can help our spouses, we can help our children, but we're supposed to be self-sacrificing. In fact, we're valued for being self-sacrificing. People like us when we kind of, you know, don't, don't meet our own needs and just give everything to others because it serves them, right? And, and because we're socialized to be self-sacrificing, that means we feel a little uncomfortable meeting our own needs and that harms women. So a really important part of fierce self-compassion is sometimes saying no to others and yes to ourselves, right? Not giving ourselves away. 
It doesn't mean we become selfish or self-centered. It just means that we include ourselves in the circle of compassion. And sometimes we do need to prioritize our own needs just so that we don't drown or become too exhausted so that we can keep um, you know, maintaining our relationships. So that's really what, what fierce self-compassion is, is about, um, including here's another big part of fierce self-compassion is harnessing anger for the alleviation of suffering. So people, women are, have such an uncomfortable relationship with anger. It's not our fault. It's because people don't like angry women. People tell us we shouldn't be angry. We're supposed to be sweet. We're supposed to be nice. Um, even in the mindfulness world, I have to say, I kind of struggle with anger. And as a mindfulness teacher, I always kind of thought, well, it's something I can work with or be with. But what I started realizing that my anger is in many ways my source of power. It's like that Kali energy, that incredible, power, powerful energy that, you know, that stands up, that says no to injustice. For instance, there's a lot of anger in the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, as there should be, because there's a lot to be angry about. And anger can be very useful, as, again, as long as it's harnessed for good. It can focus you. It can give you power. It can help you be brave. It reduces the fear response. Um, it focuses you. It lets people know there's a problem. So anger is good as long as, again, it's harnessed for the alleviation of suffering. Where it gets a problem, a problematic is if there's no tenderness in it. In other words, if it's all angry or when it's so fierce that it starts becoming aggressive or hostile, then you actually start undermining compassion. Mm -hmm. Right? You start you if you harm people, it's no longer in the service of compassion. But if that anger is harnessed to say, no, I'm drawing a line in the sand, no more, I'm not going to budge that bravery, that strength. That's actually very important for compassion. And so we, we need balance. If we have too much tenderness and acceptance without enough fierceness, we can become complacent. I mean, we just we can't sit on our cushions and be healthy and well while, while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. You know, that's not compassion. Right. On the other hand, if we're just angry and fierce, you know, with, with no tenderness, in other words, if we're harming other people, if we're attacking other people, if we're shaming others, then we're just adding to the problem. And so we really need to balance fierceness and tenderness in order to be well, right? This, this, is, what, this is what the great social justice movements of the 60s did. You know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, it was like strength with love. Mm. Here's the thing. Gender socialization screws everyone over. It doesn't allow men to be tender. At great cost to men, it cuts them off from a type of emotional intelligence. I think it leads to the type of you know, aggression and exploitativeness that causes problems in the world, but it doesn't allow women to be fierce, right? And so regardless of gender identity, <laughs> we need to be able to harness both important tools of compassion. So I wrote my book for women, partly because I'm a woman and partly because a slightly different book would have to be written for men because the, the pathway, you know, the way to get back to balance is slightly different than men. Um, I also wrote it because, you know, just as I, I have a lot of personal stories in this book, but I had an experience, a really um, horrible experience with someone that I was actually good friends with, that I was supporting, that, that turned out to be a mini Harvey Weinstein, was like sexually exploiting people. Mm. And so just my, my going through that and seeing how the devastation of the woman and really unpacking, well, what happened? How did we all allow this to occur? And the people who knew about it, you know, why didn't they say anything? Why didn't they speak up? And just really unpacking that, which is, and almost any woman you talk to today says, well, actually, me, you know, me too. Something like that happened to me too. It's so common. 
Yeah. What what has gone on in our history and our socialization that has kind of allowed this to occur? Not that we take the blame for it. Of course not. It's, it's not our fault. But nonetheless, what's happening different now that's, that's causing us to say no more? And I think what it is, is we're getting in touch with our fierceness. Right? And so that's why the book is really written for women. It's like all my sisters, including myself, now is the time. You know, I, I open the book with saying there's something in the air. Every woman I talk to can feel it. And isn't it so true? Oh, gosh, it's so true. And, and it, it's funny that you're bringing up the Me Too movement and your own experience with that, because I feel like we sort of just got started with that. And, yeah. and there were two movements, I think, that are just just so important to our human experience and our human evolution right now, especially in this country. One is Me Too and the other one is Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they're just- Started by women, by the way. Totally. Yeah, by totally. women. Yeah, exactly. Who are women? I yeah. mean, just amazing sisterhood there. And such a balance of tenderness and and fierceness as well. Um, yeah. But it seems like it's it's the beginning of a conversation. And yeah. already I can feel society just being like, oh, we had that. We had the Me Too movement. I'm like, the Me Too movement? We're yeah. just very, first of all, the Me Too movement is is so much bit bigger than unresolved trauma. Oh, yeah. Um, on, that, oh. on that very personal experience, it's unresolved trauma for women and the feminine and that's, that's right. why it's, we're at the beginning of the conversation. And so this book is is so timely because there's so much work to be done. And we are going to need a fierce heart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and by the way, in my book, I kind of like to call it yin and yang energy as opposed to masculine and feminine. Just mm -hmm. because, I mean, it works to say masculine and feminine. But like, for instance, as a woman, I have a lot of yang energy. You know, and so in a way, calling it yin and yang, which really corresponds, the yin is the more feminine, the yang is the more active masculine, because it really takes it out of gender roles. I mean, I think every individual, whether you're cisgender, whether you're transgender, whether you identify as a male or a female, you can express these yin and yang energies in a unique way. And this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This should be allowed. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is when we start saying women are one way or man, you know, in a way you start constraining it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think it's a useful way to talk about it. That's not quite as limiting. Um, it's also, you know, there's also problems with that. It's a little foreign, at least to the American ear, but, but yeah, it's really all about balance. Um, and so what I've done, what I've tried to do, and this is just, you know, this is probably the next 10 years of my life, maybe, maybe the rest of my life, who knows, and it's, it's more, more than just saying this is a good idea. I think intuitively we could say, okay, this is a good idea. But moving it to the next level of, okay, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. So I've developed practices that, again, they, they always come from this place of kindness, which is, and especially for women. The, the other reason it's written for women is 85% of the people who come to my workshops are women. Women are actually much more open and comfortable with the idea of using kindness and love as a vehicle of like, you know, as a vehicle of power or helping men, because again, they think it's a weak thing. They're a little more less comfortable. And so really it's so, I think, liberating to see, okay, part of being a loving person is being angry. Part of being a loving person is saying no to others. Part of being a loving person is uh, standing up for myself, drawing boundaries. 
part of being a loving person is motivating change. It just kind of, it, it makes sense for a woman. That's why it's like how you can harness kindness to claim your power. Because it really is. These are two faces of love. Absolutely. And it's so sad that we tend to only see one side or the other. Um, and I think that harms everyone when we do that. Mm, yes. I, there's so much I, I want to say, but I want to dial it back to where you said, and it sounded like there was a piece of research around women being less self-compassionate. Now, yes, absolutely. Passion and kindness and all of that. Way uh, more compassionate to others. Big gender difference. Right. And yes. so, but when you say tender, and we work with a lot of women in tech and, and women in the in the corporate space as well as women yeah. in the public space who are coaches. And what I find is regardless, even the best therapists in the world I've met that that the tenderness towards the self is yeah. not, it doesn't seem to be intuitive, or maybe we've had so much socialization that we can't allow it. And there's an, there's an, an aggressiveness towards ourselves. I'm, I'm going to go beyond like, we're not tender to ourselves. That's a nice, yeah. easy thing to yeah, do. Yeah. All step. Can we just be tender? But there yeah. is a, a self-aggression yeah. that we need to unfold and unpack here. And I just, I yeah. don't, I'm ready for practices and ways around that, but yeah, yeah, I've, I've developed a, a lot of them. You know, it's interesting. The the most effective way I found, and this is something that I had I had to discover over the years, the most effective way to deal with our inner critic so it's not so destructive is to befriend it, right? So when we see that actually what our inner critic is trying to do is to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, using in a very kind of immature way. Like, so it's a fight, flight or freeze response. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a reptilian brain. It's a very old part of us. It's a, it's a, um, it's kind of a natural response. We don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up because what happens is we feel threatened. So I failed. Okay. I feel threatened. I'm in danger. How do I deal with that threat? Okay. Fight it. Well, of course, the problem is that I'm the threat, so I fight myself. And there's some hidden, kind of not very well formulated, but assumption that this is going to help me control myself. I won't make the mistake again. I'm going to be safe. Or maybe what you're doing to be safe is other people are going to attack me. If I attack myself first, it won't hurt so much when they attack me. There's a lot of reasons that go into why we criticize ourselves, but they all come down to safety. Almost every single one of them come to, comes down to safety. Even if it's the internalized voice of like your mother or your father, well, why did you internalize that voice? You mm -hmm. did it to be safe. And so once you really understand that our inner criticism and our harshness with ourselves stems from the kind of very innocent, in a way, loving desire to be safe, mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, then we thank the inner critic and we say, I hear you. Thank you so much for trying to keep me safe. But you know, Actually, I think there's a more effective way to keep myself safe. And that's with compassionate motivation. You know, we still try to change, but it doesn't come from a place of I'm inadequate and unworthy unless I change. It's because I love you, I want you to change. I want you to reach your full potential. I don't want you to keep harming yourself or others. And we know very clearly from the research that it's a much more effective form of motivation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So can you just give us a little snippet on that? I know it's in your book and it's all over yeah. your work and your website, but just yeah. for our audience, tell us about the research that says that self-compassion is a better motivator. You will get more done than that inner critic. 
Yeah, oh, so I'll give you just one description of, of a research study. And it's kind of cool because it also compares self-compassion to self-esteem, mm. right? So we also think that we just need a self-esteem boost that's gonna solve all our problems. Well, self-esteem is actually problematic because self-esteem, which is like positive judgment that, you know, I'm a good person or I'm a bad, it's like an evaluation, like I'm an A to an F, mm -hmm. um, that, that's often contingent, right? So we have high self-esteem if we succeed, but we have low self-esteem if we fail. And that's a problem because it, it puts pressure on us. We develop fear of failure. It means it's harder to learn from our failure. So here's an example of a study. It was a great study um, out of Berkeley. So they gave um, a bunch of Berkeley students um, a very hard vocabulary test that everyone failed. And they, they split the, um, the participants into three groups. One group, they gave them self-compassion instructions. Okay, you know, don't beat yourself up about this. It happens to everyone. It's a difficult test. Try to be kind and supportive to yourself. Um, another group, they um, said self-esteem boost. Don't worry, you must be smart. You got into Berkeley for God's sake, right? So self-esteem boost. And the third group, they didn't say anything, which meant they were probably just beating themselves up, which is kind of the habitual reaction. And then they said, okay, well, we're gonna take um, the test again. We're gonna take a second test. Um, you know, you can study for as long as you want. Here's some study materials. Just let us know when you're ready to take the test. So basically they measured how long people studied before the next test. Mm -hmm. And what they found is the people who were told to be self-compassionate studied longer for the test than the other groups and how long you studied was linked to how well you performed on the test. So it's a really kind of good illustration of what happens is really how do you deal with failure or how do you deal with, you know, when you get something wrong? If you're compassionate, it's like, okay, I got that wrong. Not a big deal. Just because I failed doesn't mean that I'm a failure. What right. can I learn from this? And we know that failure is our best teacher, <laughs> right? So as long as we don't take it personally, then we can learn from our failure. We can grow. Um, and there's a lot of research shows that, that shows this, that it's linked to more motivation. It's not linked to a performance anxiety, for instance, which undermines our ability to achieve. doesn't lead to things like procrastination, the way self-criticism does. It makes well, total sense. It's, 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 it's really intuitive, but the research just supports what's intuitive. Yeah, it, it's, it's intuitive now because I know your work. Yeah. But honestly, it took me a while to trust that ah. because I have gotten so much done with kicking my ass. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So much done through comparison or wanting to meet the, the yeah. requirements of my parents or on and on and yeah. on. And to make that shift to yeah. trust, yeah. compassion. I had to take baby steps. I mean, literally yeah. I was trying like small things like, you know, sales meetings or should I wear this dress today or like a really, uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, you know, and letting it unfold and, and doing practices that way, the hand on the heart. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you. My first two years at Emerging Women, I, I, I used to joke to people, I'm doing the Kristen Neff. I'm like the whole day, the whole day I would type with one hand. I'd have one hand on my heart. You yeah. know, but it works. It works. And it's true that it works in such a deep way that yeah. with the resilience, you will, I tell people all the time, you want to get more done, be more self-compassionate. Hello, lovely listeners. I want to pause for a moment here to make sure that you know how you can get even more access to this type of inspiration and support. Emerging Women has its own membership community 
where you get teachings from incredible female leaders and coaching support directly from me, as well as other brilliant members within the Emerging Women Tribe every month. If you are ready to go deeper into your own leadership and emerging journey, head over to EmergingWomen.com for a free trial of our membership community. We've truly designed it as a hub for women like you who want to create change in the world. Don't go it alone, sisters. Head over to EmergingWomen.com forward slash membership and start your free trial today. Now, let's get back to our conversation. And so Chantal, I'll give you, I'll give you a, um, a variation, uh, a fierce variation of the hand on heart. Put a fist on your heart. Send it, first of all, sit up tall. So okay, really, do it. I'm going to do my, my, my power pose here. Now sit up tall and put your fist on your heart and can really embody strength and courage. Mm-hmm. And now put your other hand over it, which is like strength with love. Right. So imagine you got to go into a meeting or, and like do something difficult or, you know, you're going to go to your Black Lives Matter march. You're going to do you're going to talk to a politician or something like that. Right. So so and there's a lot of very simple things like that. So the body posture makes a difference. You know, you might use like a firmer tone, but still warm. But there's like a soft. Oh, it's OK. And there's like you can do it. I believe in you. Or, you know, mm-hmm. you're treated unfairly. This needs to stop. Mm-hmm. So you can use, you know, and again, we know how to do this for others. You know, if our, if our child's threatened or our best friend, you know, I don't know about you, but if anyone threatens my kid or someone I love, I really get very fierce quite naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really just harnessing the energy. Well, I love using mama bear because it actually is a feminine energy, mama bear. You know, and we're, Talk to we're, us about Mama Bear. I know and you don't have to be a mother to have access yeah. to it. So Mama Bear, again, this is this is the power that, you know, we can tap into as women to protect those we love, especially our children. And it's also actually, you know, built into physiology. And men also have access to it. it, may, it may, I think it comes out a little bit differently for women. Um, but I like it because it is a feminine a symbol and we and we all know it intuitively that power that comes with protecting someone we love i mean we will give up our we'll be so brave we'll give up our lives for our children we'll do it you know talk about um provoke, providing for 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 um sorry we we do that um talk about meeting needs our ability to meet needs with our children you know we may work three jobs work really, really hard to meet our children's needs or motivate change. You know, we're really going to help them get the grades they want in school or be all they can be or save for the college fund. We do it so naturally for our children and those we love. Um, We've just been told, and I don't think it's so much that it's not natural. I think we've been told more than that. We've only been valued (laughs) when we do it for others and not ourselves. So what we're doing as women is giving ourselves permission to use this fierce mama bear side of our nature to help ourselves in addition to others, not instead of others. It's just me too. And well, me. What we've been told is that we're selfish. if we. Do yes, that. exactly. That and that's bullshit. Because if you look at the research, I can, I can prove to you it's bullshit. I can show you the studies that no, show. So for instance, um, so people who are more self-compassionate, they're rated by their romantic partners as being more giving, more caring, more intimate. Um, they're more likely to compromise in conflicts. They're less likely to subordinate their needs, but also they're less likely to prioritize their needs. They're more likely to, to, to compromise. Um, also, a lot of research in the, in the caregiving literature 
So if you just give and give and give and self-sacrifice, whether it's because you're a mother, like an autistic kid, I did a study with, with autism parents, or you're a healthcare worker, I've also done a lot of work with healthcare workers, or if you're a therapist, or um, you know, you're a social activist, social work activist, anything that requires intense giving, you're gonna burn out. You can't, it's like, you can't just give and give and give um, one way because eventually your cup will run dry. And so, and people talk about self-care, like, you know, taking time for yourself and that's good. And actually people who are more self-compassionate absolutely practice more self-care, but it's not just behavioral self-care. We need emotional self-care. We need to, we need to like say, this is so hard. We need to be there for ourselves. We need to support ourselves. We need to encourage ourselves. We need to draw boundaries as, as, as we have to, we can't, in other words, if the reason we're doing it is partly because we want people to like us or think that we're nice, you know, it's not going to sustain us, right? And and then and here's the thing: is a lot of people are going to take us for granted anyway, you know, aren't they? Control it. We cannot control. We cannot control people's experience of us are. And yeah. here's the thing: and I, I didn't tell this to a woman. It's not, you know, it's true that it serves other people's needs when we say yes to them and no to ourselves. And some people may like us a little bit less when we start saying no to them. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we don't do it cruelly. We don't say it like, you know, in a, in a mean way. We say it with kindness, and we usually, you know, we want to combine the tenderness and the fierceness. But it's kind of a political act. It's kind of saying, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to go along with the program. My needs count too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here's the thing about self-compassion is you're less dependent on other people's approval because you can approve of yourself, right? So you're, again, when your sense of self-worth isn't so contingent on other people and it's kind of more um, universal, unconditional, comes from within, it gives mm-hmm. us a lot of freedom to be authentic and to forge our own way in the world. I love this so much, especially this emphasis on emotional self-care. Yeah. And you, I just want to unpack that because it, it, you know, the world, it's just been a crazy last couple of years. It has. Yeah. Some people are in their bubbles and they're like, see no evil, hear no evil. And they're just Uh like, like, you know, with the hood over their head and other people are just racked with, despair and yeah and just heartbreak and because we have so much compassion yes yeah how can we affect change and be able to look at it look at what's yeah. happening you have to yeah and we have to and and practice emotional self-care well you, you can't do it if you don't right you you will, you can try for a while but you you will burn out so for instance social activists people and it's it's hard to be a social activist because you have to be willing to turn toward the pain and most of us would rather put our heads in the sand you know global warming i just won't think about it you know systemic racism well you know it's not i don't really it's not in my life you know and and that harms everyone i mean just look at the planet like look at the state of the planet it harms everyone so if, if self-compassion does anything, what it does is it gives us the strength to open to pain without being overwhelmed. Mm. That's the primary thing that's, it's not the only thing, but it's one of, just one of the gifts of self-compassion. It's the ability to hold pain with love. And why is that? Because normally we usually have two approaches to pain. Either we, again, we avoid it, we put our head in the sand, 
And that's a problem because the pain's still there. We just aren't dealing with it. And also research shows when you repress it, sometimes it actually just makes it worse. Or the other thing is we get consumed by it. We get lost in it. I call it over-identification, right? We get overwhelmed by it. And that's a problem because we get depressed or we get anxious or we, you know, worst case scenario, we contemplate suicide. I mean, you know, a lot of we turn to drugs or alcohol. That's not healthy either. So with self-compassion, what's happening is when you treat yourself like someone else that you love, there's a natural type of perspective taking that occurs. It's like instead of being fused with the pain, you step outside of yourself. You get a larger perspective to say, wow, you're really struggling. Is there anything I can do to help? I really care about you, right? And so when you do that, you're facing it. You aren't avoiding it, but you also aren't fused with it. You aren't consumed by it. And here's here's the, mo- the even cooler thing. So self-compassion not only decreases depression, stress, anxiety, all of that. It's actually a positive emotion. It feels good when we feel love through, in our, through our hearts. It feels good when we feel connected to the larger whole. It feels good when we're mindfully present. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the brain on compassion, it activates the reward centers of the brain because it's actually a, a positive, rewarding, fulfilling emotion. So when we hold our pain with love, what happens is instead of being consumed by the pain, our awareness starts to be fused with the love that's used that we're holding the pain with. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the predominant um, thing that we're in contact with in terms of our experiential awareness. Okay, I'm just slow down here because you are on fuego. Uh, (laughs) Our brain becomes fused with the love. No, so so our, our awareness becomes fused with the love holding the pain instead of being, instead of our awareness being fused with the pain. Yeah. Say it again. We're we're holding our pain with love. We're saying, this is so hard right now. I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do to help? I care about you just like we would to a friend. Right. So think about it when a friend comes to you and they're really in pain. Yes. You feel the pain and you wish more than anything else that it wouldn't be there. Um, But because it's not you itself, because it's your friend, you're also feeling the love and the tenderness towards your friend. And that love and tenderness and closeness and connection actually feels good, Mm, right? You don't want it to happen. Of course not. But there's there's some some real satisfaction and the ability to be there for your friend, to be able to be a support for them, to love them, to care for them, Mm -hmm. right? This is important because um, as somebody who's, you know, overcome dissociative patterning, when there's something painful, even a friend or whatever, I would do everything to either fix it or like I could feel myself recoiling or I would try and just problem solve. And what you're saying is that with self-compassion, we develop more resilience so that we can be present. We can be present with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's more what I call, I'm calling the tender side. It's the ability to be with pain. Mm-hmm. Really crucial. Now, and often, I mean, I haven't really figured out temporally which comes first, but in general, you kind of need to start with the being with. Mm-hmm. You also want to make change, but you don't want the change to be as an excuse for not being with, because then it won't work. We, we say um, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. In other words, if you use it as an avoidance strategy, it won't work. Yeah. But when we open to what is, we open to the pain and we hold that pain with love, uh, we aren't so overwhelmed. 
And then also that love spurs us to take action. Now, you know, we can't control the outcomes of that action. We, we can't, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to this planet. We can do everything we can. We'll do our best. We can't control things. Um, but we, we can absolutely do our best and we must do our best. We need to take action. It's not enough just to say, you know, I'm with the pain of it with an open heart. Mm-hmm. It's necessary, but it's not enough. But if you skip that step, that's not going to work either. You're just going to burn out or you're going to add to the problem. Or, yeah, there's a lot of actions being done out there that aren't rooted in being present with what's happening. Exactly. It just becomes layers of action and they've lost the connection to why, you know, the human connection. That's right. And that's. You know, that's what we have right now is a lot of systems and solutions and problem solving that is, you know, has been become disassociated with with the the emotion of and that's a very I know we're calling it yin um, yeah. or feminine. Um, yeah, I um, I just feel like being with is not the way to talk about it. Yeah. Being with and so important. We have overprivileged the mind and the logic and that kind of thinking. And agentic action, you call agency and communion is another, there's a lot of polarities that um, uh, animus and anima young talked about this, this basic duality has been talked about from a lot of different angles. Yeah. Um, but we've but it, demonized the emotions. It's something not to be trusted. It's yeah. something, you know, and I like this union. Yeah. Because uh, one without the other is, it never works. It never works. And, and yet look at what we've done, Chantal, historically. We've split them by gender. Isn't that crazy? We hope to maybe, maybe you have a, if you're heterosexual, maybe you've got a romantic relationship where you got the man embodying one and the woman embodying the other. But that gets all really funky as well, because then women, like, they need a man as a source of love and tenderness. They need a man to protect them, you know? And, like, how well has that worked for us? It works for some people, but probably not the majority of women, you know? And it harms men as well. And so, really, the, the union has to be found within. The union can't I mean, it can't only, maybe partly, but it can't only be found in like relationships or external things. It has to be found within. And then here's the thing, Chantel, is once you really look, and this has been my own journey. So um, my my marriage um, broke down, sadly, since my first book. And so I'm single, 54. And we know a lot, we know how easy it is to find a mate when you're 54 and single. <laughs> no matter how successful you are, it's a hard thing. So I'm, I'm in the same boat as a lot of women. And I've really had to confront our deep-rooted conditioning of, you know, we feel valuable when we're loved. You know, I'm heterosexual, so I feel valuable when when I'm loved by a man, that feeling of you're special. We need someone to say you're special, you're beautiful, I'm with you, I'm here for you, I'll protect you, you know. And this is not just even my lifetime. This is like generations and generations for women it feels scary not to have a man who loves us because in the past we'd, we'd be totally unsafe. Right. And, you know, and all the judgment to being a spinster. So really my journey the last uh, few years has been really to confront that and to confront that peer fear and say, well, what is that yearning for a relationship? And by the way, it's not like I've given up. I would still like one. And if one comes on, absolutely. Yeah. But I don't want to be dependent. I, I, I'm really committed to having my happiness not being dependent on having a relationship. 
right? Mm-hmm. I want that union of yin and yang, of masculine and feminine, of, of you know, being a dude. I want that union to be found within. And that, so whenever I get that sense of, oh, I wish I had someone, I want that intimacy, I want that, you know, then I think, okay, well, that's a very natural desire. It's actually a wholesome desire, but are you looking in the wrong place? You know, what if you look inward for that sense of you're special, I love you, I care about you, I'm here for you, I'll protect you, right? And then the more you can do that, and I actually, you know, I, I still... It's, it's kind of like, it's not like you get there and it's over. It's still, it's like a process. But I actually, I must say, it's one of the things I'm proudest of. I've really made that shift to being happy without a relationship. Even though, again, I'm really happy to get one if it happens as well. But my happiness isn't dependent on it. It's so freeing. It's so freeing when you when you realize that that is, I mean, I hate to say it. It's really been a way we, that people control women by making us dependent on a man to feel worthy and whole. We don't need someone else to be worthy and whole. And actually the more worthy and whole we can be internally, actually the more we have to give to others in our lives. And if I ever do get a relationship, touch wood, I'll be that much better at it. You know what I mean? It'll, it'll, I'll be able to function much more effectively in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the thing is there's still union but it's union with something, you know, you go inward for union, but is it really the small self or what are you uniting with something, the big self? Call it the divine. You can call it mother. You can call it God. You can call it interdependence. You can call it planet Earth. It doesn't matter what you call it. Mm-hmm. But that really what you're doing is you're realizing, oh, my connection is not what I thought it was. You know, it's actually much bigger than anything we 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 suspected it was and that's a beautiful thing it's a wonderful thing and it's beautifully articulated and i can tell you you are speaking to many women out there yeah i know i'm not alone on this one. Oh yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. especially since i think that when you when you talk about being in midlife um yeah. so many women have and men, you know, we, I'm not, listen, we love the men. Okay. We love, yeah, yeah, love, yeah, love, yeah. love, love the men, yeah. but we, this but is men a, don't, but men don't feel worthless when they're alone. No, they don't and have they that. Don't, no, they don't have they don't. that part of their conditioning. They don't. And they don't have part of the conditioning that, you know, to, like women are long haulers yeah. and they will, they will deal with suffering so much longer because they're used to, you know, being in labor and that's a long road, being pregnant. That's a long road. You know, you just, you're just women's roles have prepared them for suffering over the long haul. And now there's, there's more choice. There is an emergence happening energetically with in and the feminine and the the world is crying out for more of those aspects and um, leadership, corporations, everything's sort of restructuring saying we actually need more of this and so yeah. there's a call to women saying you know what i need to create a life and make decisions and have the people in my life that are going to allow me to be fully exalted as a human being yes to turn things around yes and so, we can't we can't just be more more like men in the sense that again not to degrade but we can't be aggressive or too much fierceness without tenderness we can't like 
just get into the workplace and just have those that's not that doesn't work it's that's the whole problem that capitalistic mindset the use and abuse mindset doesn't work yeah so yeah so i so i so in the book i've got i've got a whole chapter on women in the workplace i've got a whole chapter on caregiving i have a whole chapter on um on relationships and there's a lot of feminist theory in the book it's it's, it's kind of it's you know it's, it's not over the top but you have to draw on it because you have to look at the, rea the historical reality to make sense of women's experience. Yeah. Um, so you can see I'm pretty fired up about it. I know you <laughs> are. And I would say as we wrap, um, what would be your message to women right now? Right. So um, what's your call? What's your... Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's very similar to yours, Chantal. Claim your power. Yeah. Right. You know, because we we it, it there is something transpersonal going on. I don't want to be too woo-woo. I am a scientist, but nonetheless, I can say every single woman I talk to can feel it. There's something shifting. And I think part of what's shifting is this force that's already in us. You can call it Kali, you can call it mama bear, you can call it the, but this real power source that remember it comes from love this mm. power source comes from love it doesn't come from aggression <laughs> it doesn't come from dominance it comes from love as the power source it comes from kindness it comes from compassion mm. this power is within us we already know it we often tap into it for other people mm. now is our time to tap in it to it for ourselves and but it's not just ourselves it's also for the world hmm. i mean we need to get up off our butts and we need to change these broken social systems or we are going to hell in a handbasket mm -hmm. you know and it's i you know dalai lama said it's going to be women who change things and i believe it and not just women but if women aren't part of the solution there will be no solution i know i can say that unequivocally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely now I want to um, to end with you know sometimes we're on this podcast and everyone listening is going to be all fired up and they're going to be driving yeah. their cars or running and just you know yes yeah. yes but then you get out there and there's a dip and yeah. I need a lift and right. I need some support and I yeah. need some connection and you have an exercise in fact you have many exercises which we will put in the show notes folks links to all these practices on Kristen's website yeah um, but there's a practice that I asked her to share with us and it's called fierce friend and we're going to end with this um and if you Great. would be willing to to introduce the practice what it's for and um and lead us through it that would be wonderful so this is a, a practice called the fierce friend and it's actually guided visualization and the, the purpose of it is to help you um, create an image which you can call upon at any time your fierce friend and that really combines the qualities of fierceness and tenderness or, or strength with love okay so um please close your eyes or make sure that you're comfortable just take a few deep breaths to settle into your body. Okay, so I would invite you to imagine that you were sitting in some place that is very safe and comfortable. Just kind of imagine that you're in a very beautiful, safe, comfortable, peaceful place 
Maybe it's a cozy room with a fireplace burning, you know, or a beach with a warm sun, or maybe a forest glade. Just imagine this place. What's the lighting like? What are the smells like? You know, it might be just something like floating on clouds, whatever, whatever comes to your mind that feels peaceful and safe and harmonious, beautiful. And just let yourself enjoy the feeling of comfort and safety in this place. And soon you're going to be receiving a visitor, right? A strong, powerful, and brave, but also very tender and loving presence. So we're going to call this your fierce friend. So when he really embodies the quality of, of, again, tenderness, but also strength, resilience, the quality of caring force a force that's really caring and loving. And so when you think of who this visitor might be, this fierce friend, well, what image arises? You see, let, let an image form. Maybe someone you've known in the past. Maybe you had a grandparent who was really, you know, brave and protective, made you feel safe, but was also very loving. Or maybe it's just someone in the public sphere that you admire a lot. Or maybe it's a, something from your imagination, like a, like a jaguar. Or maybe a warrior goddess. Or maybe there's no particular form. Maybe it's just this glowing golden light. So again, try not to overthink it, but just let in your mind form an image of this fierce friend, strong, powerful, but very loving and caring. And so your friend, like I say, is going to visit you. And so you can actually choose. You can uh, leave your safe place to go to another place to meet your safe, your uh, fierce friend. Or else you can invite them in. It's really up to you, whatever feels most comfortable. Uh, and I'd like you to imagine that you are meeting with your fierce friend. Right, so you're with them at just the right distance. Maybe there's a little respectful distance. Maybe you're holding his or her hand, right? Whatever feels right. And just allow yourself to experience what it's like to be in the company of this being. And it's really feeling their power, their courage, their determination, their strength. but also how loved and cared for you feel in the presence of this being. Okay, so just let yourself experience the moment, experience this feeling of being so loved and protected.
And your friend is also wise, right? And sees clearly and understands exactly what's going on in your life right now. Right? Sees the areas where maybe you're a little bit out of balance. And so maybe maybe some parts of your life where you need to be more firm and to speak up, draw boundaries, stand up for yourself in some way. Or maybe actually what, what you need is to be a little more tender, a little more accepting. But your, but your friend, your friend sees what you need right now to be healthy and well. And actually gives you some message. Some message, which is just what you need to make sure that you are protected, that you are safe, and that you are well. Let's see if you can listen to what this message is. Maybe your friend even wants to give you a gift, some symbolic object that just magically materializes in your hand, something that really symbolizes caring force, this balance. You know, if no gift or no words even come, that's okay too. Maybe the gift is just to receive the presence of this being. That's the blessing. So just taking a few more moments to really soak in the feeling of the power, the strength, the care, the love. And allow yourself to realize that this fierce friend is, is actually a part of you, right? All the feelings, the images, the words that have arisen are actually flowing from your own fierce and tender heart, right? This comes from within. So you can allow the image to gradually dissolve in your mind's eye, Um, but remembering that this caring force, this fierce tenderness, it's always within you. Um, And you can call upon your fierce friend, especially when you need it the most. Okay, and then you can open your eyes when you're ready. Wonderful. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Oh, yeah, I am going to. It's a real different shift, isn't it, from all that talking to like something like that. And, and in the book, that's why I try to balance the talking, the research, the stories and the practices. because It operates on a whole different level. Yeah. Yeah. It changes definitely gets into that parasympathetic like yeah. juicy juicy loving place so, <laughs> um, I love the end where we step in that the friend is our 
really our own selves. Yeah. So, Kristen, thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure to be You're here. You're welcome. And it's been fun. It's been too long since we talked. It's great. Way too long. <laughs> Way too long. <laughs> <laughs>